I'm still recording the slideshows just to keep until we make sure these are going to upload right. I want to yes. make sure we got a backup if we need it. Um, number six is where we are today. And I don't think we're going to talk about anything. Like, yeah. No, I will not. I'm going to sit back. I can, <laughs> I can adjust it to however you want. He's like, I'm waiting for you to get comfy. I'm going to sit back. I thought about sitting up, but no. No, I'm not. Because I don't think I'll stay there. Okay. So, um... So we're talking about, you know, last week we talked about men who have strong suspicion and evidence that their wives have cheated on them, um, or strong suspicion and no evidence, but somebody's telling them it's happening. Um, and this week we're going to start talking about the Nazarite vow. And, uh, yeah, so you, you hear a lot of talk about it, you hear people mentioning it, uh, and this is, we're going to hear the specifics. So number six, verse one. And the Lord spoke. Hey, babe, babe. We're we're recording. Okay, just let you know. And the Lord said, "Babe, Moses, no." <laughs> we're recording right now. No, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the people of Israel and say to them." I'm gonna just stop and let you edit that out. Just let you get settled out there. <laughs> so speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. So Alexis is in a Nazarite vow because <laughs> she's allergic to grapes. <laughs> God, God put her in a Nazarite vow, except that she doesn't have the other stuff because you've cut her hair. So, um, But all the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine not even the seeds or the skins. Yeah. Something about grapes here, no? Oh, yes. No vinegar. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no strong drink, no vinegar. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. Not even for his father or for his mother. For brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean. Because his separation to God is on his head. So he can't leave it. He, he takes that separation with him. It's for however... Okay, good question. It's for however long they, they pronounce it will be. But um, a lot of what I, what I read when I was researching this said that um, if, if, a, if a faithful Jew so much as refuses a glass of wine when offered, they are considered to be in a 30-day minimum Nazarite vow. If they refuse a glass of wine, if I offer you wine and you say, no, I'm not drinking that, um, then that puts you in a 30-day Nazarite vow. Well, it's just automatic. I mean, you can take it and not drink it. 
But to make the declaration that you are not drinking wine is to declare that you are in that vow. Well, well, he, yeah, well, he didn't, he didn't drink any wine for his whole life. I thought he did drink wine. Did he drink wine? When did he eat grapes? Oh, maybe he was messing up all sorts of things there. Yeah, yeah. You thought girly bits was funny. Wait till we get to Samson and Delilah. <laughs> That's a that's a nasty story. For his whole life, yeah. His mother, he, it was a covenant God made with his mother that he was supposed to live out. And, uh, yeah. Well, you know. Yeah, that's right. It comes with its perks. That's right. That that incredible strength was not something he was complaining about, you know. That's right. And he used it. Oh, yes, he did. Not always correctly, but he used it. Yes. Yes. So not even so he's so he's in his separation. He's not allowed to go near a dead body, um, and and I we may be going into this here. But basically, if he if he comes in the presence of death unexpectedly, his vow is suspended, and he has to go through the purification of having been exposed to a dead body, and then the vow begins again. So they cut off when you when the, and we'll get we will get to this. But basically, you cut the hair. Drink up. Some people think of it that way. Generally, not people who would make an Azrael. <laughs> well, if you don't like wine at all, you don't care. Well, but you can't drink, you can't eat the grapes, and you can't cut your hair either. I think that's a technicality. No razor shall touch his head. <laughs> yeah, because it did. Because when Samson, when Delilah cut his hair, it still affected Samson. He didn't have to cut it himself. So all the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. And if any man dies very, yeah, here we go. If any man dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day, he shall shave it. On the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned by reason of the dead body. Okay, so he didn't have anything to do with the body dropping dead beside him. But he's in the middle of this vow of extra holy purification and now he's in the presence of a dead body. Atonement has to be made. And he shall consecrate his head that same day and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation and bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering. But the previous period shall be void because the separation was defiled. He has to start all over. Now, think about this, and let's fast forward to the Last Supper and Yeshua telling them, I will not drink of this again until I'm with you in the kingdom. Okay, and then the, he's hanging on the cross, and the first time that they come and tell him, you know, they try and give him that vinegar, and he refuses it, and he keeps refusing it. I'm guessing that the reason he didn't refuse it the last time is that, that somebody else had already died, and he was already defiled in the presence of them, because it was only at the end. Yes, it was only at the end, because they were going around and breaking everybody's legs at that point to try and kill them. And it was only at the very end that he actually drank the vinegar. But at the point that he's in the presence of a dead body, it's 
null until it, you know, until he's purified and cleansed of it. So, um, probably not. I mean, he may have been. I don't because it was an act of mercy, and I don't think that they really cared about. I mean, yeah. he he was a pretty public figure, and there was a whole lot of controversy around him even being there. Um, but, but that's, that's, I mean, he refused it. He, re he was in a Nazarite vow. He had said, I'm not drinking of this wine again until I'm in the kingdom with you, but in the presence of death, it's null. And then it starts up again. So, um, there's, there's some interesting stuff out there. You can go and read about whether Yeshua is actually in a Nazarite vow now waiting for the things we're studying in Revelation to take place. He did though, when he said, I will not drink of this cup again until I am with you in the kingdom. That was a declaration of an Nazarite vow. So he, he set himself apart in this holy vow. Um, and, and I, you know, there's, there's some interesting stuff you can, that you can find to read, and I'm, I'm sure some wacky stuff too, but I, <laughs> there is some really good stuff out there about it. Um, okay, but the previous period, because the previous period shall be void because the separation was defiled. And this is the law for the Nazarite when the time of his separation has been completed. He shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offering, and their drink offerings." Mm-hmm. Do what? They were, it was just someone who set themselves apart. Someone who said, I'm declaring a Nazarite vow. I'm not going to drink wine or partake of these things for one month or one year or... Um, yes. Yes. Only in the presence of a dead person. Oh, for the sin offering. It's, um, I'm not sure. And I can, I can look and see uh, if they talk about that. I hadn't really asked that question before. Oops. No, but they were, they were also, yeah, it may have been, um, I don't know, I'm not going to answer, I'm going to look. Because if I answer, that's when I sometimes say things I wish I hadn't said. So, six is, what, verse 14. Why does a Nazarite bring a sin offering after a period of sanctity and devotion? You ask. <laughs> they ask also. <laughs> and it says, because it would have been fitting to continue the abstinence from worldly pleasure and extend the vow of Nazarism indefinitely. The sin offering atones for his decision to return to temporal pursuits. Yeah. And remember, it's all a picture. I mean, basically, he's saying, I'm, I finish, or he or she is saying, I finished this vow. I'm going to step back and continue my life where I will be going about sinning. I'm not going to continue. And so it's not, it's, it's about a lot of times the, the offerings, if we, if we think of them as the fact that they're supposed to be pictures for us, it was making a conscious choice. It was acknowledging the end of this special set-apart period. It was, um, 
you know, it's, I don't think we need to look at it as a negative thing. Like it's not a sin to go back to not having this vow, but it was about a choice of returning to a lesser set apart way of living. And, and I know like there have been times where I have been abstaining from something and I've been feeling really good. And then I make that choice to eat it again, even if it's not something that makes me sick, but I eat that choice. I go, yeah, no, I'm not going to feel great, but I'm eating it. You know, and, and there is, it's, I think it's about acknowledging these things, you know, and, and if I've been not eating something and I'm feeling really clean and pure and I'm really good, there is an acknowledgement of, yeah, and I ate it. Now I don't feel so good. <laughs> so, um, you know, so I think it's really just about acknowledging that. And, and that was Ramban. He tends to be a little bit, um, on the on the more intense side and he has the only answer to that question so I don't know that it's something that there was a lot of of debate about you know that I don't think it was I think they just said ah God just said to do it so we're doing it you know and it marks this and we're going on um there is a very interesting book and I think I would have to find it but I think I know where it is uh Samuel Martin wrote uh, a little book that talks about the mark of Cain and his father was a professor at the University of Israel it was the University of Israel and he he puts forth uh, the idea that the mark of Cain was actually a Nazarite vow that that his that it was his hair that everyone saw that set him apart um, and that it was in atonement for what he'd done to Abel that he committed himself to a higher level of of being set apart and and sanctity and and so that this was actually first instituted with Cain and and that's I think a very he, he makes a lot of really strong strongly supported arguments it's very interesting not something I take a you know I'm not going to go preaching that the mark of Cain is a Nazarite vow, but it made me go, huh, okay. And that would be an interesting beginning of this vow and why it was so specific and why maybe a sin offering was involved with stepping out of it. And I don't think it was something that, you know, that, that was being done all the time. You know, it's, it's definitely just like, I don't think men were bringing their wives before the priest all the time and accusing them of cheating. I mean, it, it was a vow that was available to you and it was a specific vow. And it's very interesting that in the midst of everything, here is this very specific vow that involves abstaining from wine, abstaining from grapes, abstaining, you know, though I do have to laugh because I've met, I've met Christians who don't drink and they just say, oh, I'm in a Nazarite vow. I'm like, when did you get your haircut? You know, <laughs> maybe you should stop saying you're in a Nazarite vow if you're not actually in a Nazarite vow because there's some pretty specific requirements on that. It's great you're abstaining from wine. I got no problem with that. Not a Nazarite vow. <laughs> and contrary to some things I've heard, Church of the Nazarenes is not about their, their general stance that abstinence is good. <laughs> not, it's not a denomination about being in a Nazarite vow. So, <laughs> um, so when, this is the law, verse 13, this is the law for the Nazarite when the time of his separation has been complete. Okay, so he brings all the offerings, basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And keeping in mind that there's a lot of oil, which always represents the spirit, that, that the wine represents, um, you know, the, the offering and the blood, um, and they bring their grain offering and their drink offerings. 
Verse 16, and the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering, and he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall also offer its grain offering and its drink offering, and the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. So shaves his head, gives it to God. Not the head, the hair. <laughs> Shaves his hair, gives it to God. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it is boiled and one unleavened loaf out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and shall put them in the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved the hair of his consecration. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are a holy portion for the priest together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite. But if he vows an offering to the Lord above his Nazarite vow, as he can afford in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do an addition to the law of the Nazarite. So in other words, this is the minimum vow. Let's say you're rich and you're doing this and you consecrate, you know, a bull. Then you give that bull to the Lord. Or then you, cons you know, you consecrate a certain amount of money. Then over and above this, you can give whatever you want. But this is the minimum vow um, of, of a Nazarite. And I wanted to... Hmm. They might have. Oh, yeah. And give it. He makes money by selling, by selling it. America. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. Well, it's like the money changers, you know. It's, yeah, it's definitely, definitely. So this is, I want to read a little bit of the commentary here at the beginning of this section. So it says, the Torah permits a man or woman to adopt voluntarily the status of Nazarite which includes three restrictions. A Nazarite is forbidden to eat or drink grapes or grape products. A Nazarite's hair may not be cut. And a Nazarite may not become contaminated by a human corpse. So those are the three, the three requirements. However, Nazaritism should not, Nazarism should not be understood as merely a catalog of prohibitions, as if the Nazarite's vow, I'm here by a Nazarite, was a shorthand pledge to abstain from wine, hair cutting, and contamination. Rather, it is a state of holiness, and the individual laws flow from this elevated status. Thus, the Nazarite adopts a state of holiness, and the Torah dictates that such holiness is incompatible with those forbidden activities. Since the Torah gives the laws of the Nazarite immediately after those of the Sotah, the wayward wife of the previous chapter, the sages derive that one who sees a Sotah in her state of degradation should prohibit wine to himself by taking a Nazarite vow. So, so basically, one of the suggestions for when this is appropriate is if you see a woman who is rotting because of her waywardness, you should call yourself to a higher standard of holiness so that you do not find yourself in a similar state of waywardness, is, is what they're suggesting. Um, this sheds light on the underlying purpose of the Nazarite status and what would prompt one to adopt it. A Sotah opted to follow her sensual passions and let her heart overpower her mind, her pursuit of pleasure to overcome her responsibility to God. 
Her experience was proof that people are easy prey to temptation and that when the evil inclination rages within them, even adultery can be seen as an acceptable option. Someone who saw her degradation, even her horrible death after she drank the bitter water, could easily be overcome by the fantasies of temptation, for human imagination is easily stimulated. To escape this snare, the Torah hints that one should abstain from wine and stimulate one's spiritual impulses in order to escape the loose, style, loose lifestyle that legitimizes the behavior symbolized by the sotah. The Nazarite's abstinence from wine signals to the Nazarite that adoption of a spiritual life can help close the door to the enticement that doomed the Sotah. So the way that they understood it, because it follows right after it, is, you know, it's like when you see, it's like when you see someone die of a heart attack and you immediately are going to change your diet. You know, I'm going to clean myself up and I'm going to, I'm going to get my life right. And, you know, or you, you go through, a, you know, you have your own scare and then you, okay, I'm going to get myself together. And so... This was when you see someone who's fallen into spiritual ruin, it's about if you're going to be prompted to declaring a spiritual purification, this is how you do it. Um, but you could, you could take it at other times also. Maybe, maybe you are f finding yourself falling into spiritual temptations or you're struggling with something, then this would be a way to try and reverse it, you know, throw it in, instead of just trying to stop it, it's about throwing it into reverse and calling yourself to that period of holiness where you can set yourself apart and, and um, pursue sanctification. So verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So that's where that blessing is given, is in the context of being called to a higher calling and being called set apart for God. So, number six. Number six, yeah. And, yeah, there's only one. Thank you. Thank you very much. I know. <laughs> so in this verse, he's seeing a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So he has moved from the millennial kingdom into the Olam Haba. He is now seeing the world to come. So we're done. We're done with that whole thousand year rain it's it's done we've seen the great throne judgment last week that's done and now we're moving into eternity we're moving into the olam haba the world to come um and and this like i said the sea is gone because the unification has come and he says um, and i saw the holy city new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband so this is where, because we've been talking about the Shekinah, you know, is the bride and that the Shekinah is with the people and that that's the bride. And Paul talks a lot about this, saying that, you know, you are called to be the bride. You were joined to the bride. Um, you know, you, and, and so there's a lot of picture of, of God's people as the bride. But now this is saying that New Jerusalem is coming down from heaven as a bride. And so this is where... In the yod Hey vav Hey, the Hey and the Hey are being joined. 
the the and the, and they're both the bride. So the whole the spirit and the spirit, it's all being restored. It's all coming back together. And um, let me see here. So it says uh, verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people." And God himself will be with them as their God. So really we've got Eden restored. Where, where God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, this, this is a restoration of that. The earth has been restored. Unification has come. God is with people dwelling in that original state that he had created us to be. So He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So all evil is gone. There is no more evil inclination. It's all about, it's about the blessings being unhindered and, and the way God created it, the way God desired it to be. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Um, this is also where the idea of the Aleph and the Tav comes into play. And we've talked a little bit about that before because in Greek, this would be the Alpha and the Omega, but in Hebrew or in Aramaic, it would have been the Aleph and the Tav. Um, and that is the word et in, in Hebrew. And that is the only word that is not translatable. They don't know how to translate it. They know it's a direct object marker a lot of times. Um, but when you go through and you study, uh, and this was just amazing to do when you're studying the prophets in Hebrew, the prophets all have one part of their prophecy that is for their day. And then a corresponding part of their prophecy that is for the kingdom, the world to come. It is for the end times. Um, usually when you're reading it, it will suddenly say, um, and in the end of days, or, you know, in the world to come, or, or at that time. And, and what happens in the Hebrew is suddenly, et, 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 is all over the Hebrew. So in the prophecy for their day, it's not there. When it switches to the kingdom or the world to come, that word is in the Hebrew all over the place. And, and so it was really fascinating because that was one of the questions we're like, well, how do we know this is about the world to come? How do we know that this, what, you know, how do we know which part of, of time this prophecy is about? And that was one of the things that we started seeing is that the Aleph Tav was there when it was about the, the world to come or the end of days. So, do you have a question? <laughs> um, so to the thirsty... I will give, but it's also, and it is also the beginning and the end. So we've, we've got that restoration picture. As he created it to be, so it is now. As he was in the beginning, so he has brought us all back to be. Um, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And... But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So 
what this is saying is that those people who pursued sin and that was their idol that was what they worshiped that was that was their identity was in their sin they have gone into the lake that we had at the the end you know the lake the lake of fire that was at the end of the last chapter they're not here so this isn't talking about more that is going to happen to them. This is basically saying those people who pursued those things didn't make it into this life. They died in the second death. They're done. Now just the righteous, the ones who are with God, get to be with God in the, in the world to come. And, and I think it's really important because this, this is the way that this is talking about them, that was their identity. I mean, people commit sins. But it is a very different thing than that being their identity. Someone telling a lie does not mean they're a liar. You know, you're a liar. I can't trust anything that comes out of your mouth. All you do is lie. Um, and, and when our identity is in God, when our identity is in Yeshua, this is why Paul keeps saying your identity is in Yeshua. Stop pursuing these things. Stop doing these things. These are not you. These are not who you are. You know, it's it's... I mean, it, it's, a, it's kind of a strange analogy, but it, when, I, when I first got married, it took me a year to stop signing my last name, my maiden name, on my checks, you know, because I would just, it was just automatic. It was my habit. It was what I'd always done. And I would, thankfully, my middle initial has the same starting letter as my last name. So for a year, all of my checks were Crystal M. Lutton, you know, <laughs> so, but, but I had a new identity and it took me a while to get used to that. It took me a while to you know, to get comfortable in that new identity. I was living as a wife, I was being a wife, I was I was changing, you know, some of my habits, I was adapting to this new relationship. And and that was one of the, the things that was just kept sticking out in my head. It's like, ah, I'm signing the wrong name, you know, and so I was changing. That's how I kind of look at Paul saying to the people, okay, you've got the you've you've got the relationship. Stop signing that last name. Stop doing those things that are, are just the holdout of your past life. It, you're done with that. Put it aside. So these are not people who committed a sin. These are people who never changed their identity. They, they were not part of the kingdom. They were part of the world. They were part of these things. So verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And this is not new plagues. These are one of the angels he saw before who had those last seven plagues. That angel came to him and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And let me see. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, a, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we're seeing that, that the new Jerusalem is built on a foundation of the apostles and the gates are the tribes. And um, 
it says uh, in the notes that I have for this, what this is a, about fulfillment of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel says in chapter 48, 32 through 35, it says, And the gates of the city shall be after the names of the tribes of Israel. Three gates on the northward, one gate of Reuben, one gate of Judah, one gate of Levi. And on the east side, there is a measure of 4,503 gates, and one gate of Joseph, one gate of Benjamin, one gate of Dan. And at the south side, there is a measure of 4,503 and three gates, one gate of Simeon, one gate of Issachar, one gate of Zebulun. And the west side, there is a measure of 4,500 with their three gates, one gate of Gad, one gate of Asher, one gate of Naphtali. It shall be 18,000 measures around and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. And um, it says also the 12 gates are found and foundations are found expressed as adornment of the matron or Jerusalem in this passage from the Zohar. It says, observe this, the 12 tribes are the adornments of the matron. When Jacob was about to depart from the world and saw that he was perfected on every side with Abraham at his right, Isaac at his left, himself in the center, and the Shekinah in front of him, he called his sons round him in order that both the lower and the upper might be fitly adorned. So he called his sons around him at his death in this order, is what, is what they're saying. That, that basically his death became a unification, a picture of the New Jerusalem, where everything was united. Because that was, um, that was his, you know, he, his role as one of the patriarchs was to unite the spiritual and the physical. He talked about um, his, his two main wives, you know, that, that uh, Rachel was his earthly physical love and she represented you know it was from her that joseph came who saved the israel israelites in egypt in this world but it was from leah who was more spiritual that judah came from whom the messiah came and so she was the one who saved the people for the world to come and and so at his death he had them all surrounding him in that picture of what was going to happen now at the end of revelation and what we see in ezekiel and, and so there's a, all of this connection. Um, and then uh, the number 12 is well associated with Israel, um, but it's also, it's also talked about in um, different concepts like creation, the community of Israel, the high priest, uh, Jacob and where he put his sons, the lower world being patterned on the upper world, the upper and lower Shekinah, spiritual connections between various stones. Um, you know, the stones that David wore on his breastplate, there were 12 of them. Um, so there's, there's 12 is a, is a, is a real completion number, and a, um, and so we find here twelve foundations, the twelve gates, uh, and verse fifteen or verse fourteen, and the, the wall of the city had do what on the twelfth. There you go. Mhm. Mm Seven and twelve. Yeah. Oh, it's I, that is very cool. Um, and on the, so the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, and the one who spoke, verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. So that was what we saw also in that, in that passage from Ezekiel, that it was um, 4,000 on, on each side. Um, I'm sure it was a Greek measurement. Yeah, I would have to look it up, but it's, I think it, well, because they have in here, um, and 
And that's what's so interesting. It's because it just says in the Ezekiel there is a measure of four thousand and five hundred, and it doesn't say what. So it's whatever this rod that they're measuring. Four thousand rods. <laughs> four thousand of his. That's right. <laughs> he also measured its wall, one hundred and forty-four cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. And I think that the key is, is. Um, that it's the it's the twelve and what that represents, and that it's even on every side. That it that it's equal. That's that's so whatever you measure it by, it would be equal on every side. Um, the wall was built of jasper. Uh, oh, and it's 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So it's it's by this perfect measurement. Um, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I know. And so when people are saying, what do you think heaven will be like? Well, this isn't heaven. This is the Olam Haba. This is the new heaven and the new earth. This is the world to come. This is the unification of the throne room with the earth back to the, this is what God originally created. This is, this is basically what the garden was intended to be. And in the midst of this, they decided to eat that other fruit. Yeah. And so basically, <laughs> right, but everything, and, and they were, and in the midst of this, they were, they were tempted with, you can have all the power too. And, and so then you start this big long process of having to get rid of that part of us. So that we can go back and be in this and, and understand and appreciate. And it's very, it's a very prodigal son picture. You know, the son who had everything, who says, no, I want my inheritance now. I want to go out and do it on my own. And that's what mankind did. And, and God says, okay. You know, and then when we realize and come back, it's what Israel did. When they were living in the land and he was blessing them and all the blessings were on them. And they said, you know, we, we want more. Why aren't you doing what we want? You're not doing it the way we want. And he says, you know what? And, and really, when you, when you read the prophets, this, this is kind of my, my, my paraphrase. But what God says is, if you continue living the way you are in the land, you will die. Because there are principles set up for living in the land that you're violating. I will, have, I will have to take your life because, you know, they, the land was crying out. We're not getting our Sabbath. Uh, you know, the money was crying out. We're, you know, we're not being used for the poor. The priests are stealing us. Everything was crying out to God. And he's like, if I leave you here, you will die. I have to send you out. And then when you want to come back, you'll be ready to come back. I'm going to so and you know and so he sent them out and he attached a blessing to them. I'm going to send you out as the first fruits among the nations you know go and sow seed bring them back with you and so there there's just there's throughout scripture there's this picture of not appreciating not being content with what we have and having to go out so that we can work our way back 
to wanting to be there. And this is the picture of, you know, all of creation finally has come back. And this is this is the big party that, that the man is throwing for his son who's come home. This is the wedding feast. This is that eternity going on in with those who actually want to be there and who appreciate it. And I just, I love the picture of the, the pearls, each pearl is, each gate is made of a single pearl. This is just amazing. And that's a giant pearl. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and the street, that's right. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. That's just phenomenal. Oh, yeah. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And, um, where does it say? Okay. Yes, because the purpose of the temple was to always create that connection between the upper and the lower world. It was, it was that picture, you know, it was made after the likeness of what Moses saw in the throne room. It was that, that attempting to create here, and, and it was where God came. It was that connector place between the upper and, you know, the throne room of God and the world. And we don't need it anymore. We don't need it because it's all unified. It's all connected. God is right there. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the lamp. And this is why, you know, in the creation story, when God said, let there be light, that's not the sun and the moon. It's it's the righteousness. It's the holiness. It's... it's um, I love, a friend of mine was watching a, a science thing and it was talking about, about what happened at the Big Bang, you know, the quote-unquote Big Bang. And, and she said she was watching it, and this is with all of the new understanding through chaos theory and all of the other stuff that they've done. And, and it's through chaos theory and a lot of these studies that you've got this movement in science that, while not necessarily Christian, is, is creationist or first mover. Or, you know, they, they've, they've basically gone, you know, no matter how far back we take it or no matter how low we go on the microscope, we keep expecting to find chaos and we find order. And, and this kind of order had to have something behind it. You know, there, a lot of, some of them become Christian. A lot of them are like, I'm not willing to say it's necessarily the Christian God. I'm not there, but there's something, there's someone, someone did this. Yeah, the deists, um, yeah, the, I think of the big, the new movement, the first mover is what a lot of them will, will call themselves in, in the science world. Um, but when, it, when, when she was telling me what the description was, it said something happened and matter and antimatter separated. And when matter and antimatter separate, you have light and dark. And, and the, that, you know, that's when you read through Genesis, it, it reads very much like this, you know, that, that, that matter and antimatter separated and then things were formed. And, um, so, so this is, we don't need the sun and the moon anymore because we have the light, that light that was first created. And, uh, and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So this is everyone who's there. There's the Israelites. There's those from the nations who came and attached themselves to God. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So, so this, this is, you know, John's saying here, the only way to get into 
this place is to attach yourself to the Lamb. It's to attach yourself to God. It's to be in the Lamb's book of life. That's your, that's your, in, that's your golden ticket. If you want to get in, you got it. You got to be in the Lamb's book of life. If you're not there, you can't get in. And the whole point of all of the things that happened in Revelation were to push so that it, it's, it's a birth. You've got people in, who are still in the undecided, and the labor pains start, and, and one way or the other, you're going to be in one book or the other. And so it's moving you forward. It's progressing you so that whoever's not going to make it doesn't come, and whoever does gets shot out into <laughs> the Olam Haba, and they're there. And that's life. And if you didn't get, if you didn't make it through this birth into the Olam Haba, you're gone. It is, yeah, it is the restored earth. It is back to what Eden was supposed to. It's in, in a lot of Hebrew writings, it's called Pan Eden, or Gan, I'm sorry, Gan Eden, or Pan Eden. Um, and we're actually going to read, there, there's a, the river of Eden we're going to read about in chapter 22. So there's more imagery from Genesis that we're going to even get to in that last chapter. So there we are in a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. You know, again, not scary. <laughs> not scary. It's a, you want to be here. <laughs> you want to have survived and, and made it through. Thoughts, questions, grand declarations. <laughs> okay, then may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. Amen. As we await this.